can be seated. What a fabulous job the worship team did leading us in worship today. Uh, thank you, Matthew, and amen. Then they do a great job. It's good to see some choir up there. Uh, you know, I'll point out, and this just ties in with the direction of our message this morning and the direction the sermon is headed here in a little bit. Uh, 25% of those leading worship on stage today were McKendry's. <laughs> You're doing a good job, Stephen. Uh, the Lord is blessing you and your family. Almost 25%, uh, making up almost half of the team that was up here, uh, were Roberts from their household. And so we see, we see God at work and families in our church to raise up uh, young men and women, to raise up young adults to, to lead us in worship and praise the Lord for that. And I, I am so grateful for what God's doing through that worship ministry. Man, I'll, I'll even say it was great to see Kirby Skagg standing up here in choir, uh, helping lead us in worship. So uh, we are blessed by what God is doing here at First Baptist Watauga through our music ministry and the focus of that ministry on the Word of God. And I really appreciate that. In today's worship, there was a strong focus on the redemptive language of Scripture, of, of the fact that even in our sin, especially in our sin, we get to see the love of God. Certainly, we see His justice. We see His, his hatred for sin. But we see that He sent His Son to die on a cross that we could be redeemed from our sin. Please keep that in mind because today we're continuing our study in Malachi. Malachi is the last of the, the minor prophets in the, New, in the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you've got the old paper version of the Bible, you can go to Matthew and go back a page or two and you'll find Malachi. Uh, it's a lot easier if you have your iPhone or iPad because you just go find it in the little index. But we are in our third week of our study of Malachi. And Malachi, we're looking at it from this perspective of seven steps to personal renewal or personal revival. The first week, we focused on Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and God calling his people back to remember how much he loves us, to remember the love of God. He did that right before he began to kind of bring the hammer, because in Right after that in chapter 1, God looked at his people and he said, I hate your half-hearted worship. You're playing games with me. You're acting like you're my children or you're saying my, you're my children, but you are not showing me true love and true devotion. You're only worshiping with half your heart. Today's lesson comes from Malachi chapter 2, and it focuses on God's desire for us to be people who keep our commitments. Now, I would use the term to keep our promises, to be promise keepers. Now, that phrase is already was tied up in a movement, a, a men's movement among evangelicals for about 20 years. And, and I want to kind of stay away from that because what we're talking about is more than a promise. The language that God uses in Malachi is covenant language. This idea, and then the difference between a promise and a covenant basically is this. A promise is something that I make to you and you make to me. We have an agreement between two people. It's kind of a contractual agreement. A covenant is a, a commitment that we make 
knowing that we make that commitment before God according to his will. And so when someone gets married, you enter into a marriage relationship, we believe that God called us to come together. We believe that he put us as man and woman together and that we are making not just a commitment. I didn't just make a commitment to Susan as my wife, but I made a commitment to God to, to love her and, and to cherish her and to care for her. And so a covenant commitment is a three-way commitment. And that's the kind of commitment I believe God calls us to make into his church family. And we're going to be, that's the direction we're going to head. So let me lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into his word. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your love is put on display, especially when we fail. And Father, we can look at our culture, we can look at our families, we can look at our own lives, and we see our sin. And when we do, it, it, it challenges us, especially when your word calls us out. Father, I pray that as we hold up a mirror to our culture today, we hold up a mirror and we look into that mirror in our own lives. Some of us who have, who have failed to keep our covenant commitments, Lord, I pray that as we see our own sin, that we also see that you sent your son to die, to shed his blood so that we could be redeemed and you could make us new again. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would teach us as we look in your word together, challenge us to be called back to you and your ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was pastoring at First Baptist Church May, <clears throat> there was an a Air Force veteran, a retired Air Force vet veteran who I'd had the privilege of, of leading to Christ. And he had a movie that was very meaningful to him, and he wanted me to watch this movie. And he uh, brought it to me on DVD, and it was a signed copy of the DVD. It was signed, and I didn't know the story behind the movie. I hadn't watched the movie at that point, and it was signed by Colonel Hal Moore. Now, you may know the movie already if you have watched the movie uh, starring Mel Gibson called We Were Soldiers. It is the story of the first major conflict between American troops and Vietnamese troops in the Vietnam War. Colonel Moore uh, was a, a hard-nosed uh, commander who had uh, uh, led many men into battle before that point. And there is a scene in the movie that was very meaningful to me. It's actually scenes that are paired. The cinematography was great. Now, I, I, I will uh, caution you. I, I, I cannot wholeheartedly recommend the movie because it is a very realistic war movie. It is rated R because of that. It has uh, incredible uh, images of war violence in the movie. It also has language uh, that is difficult uh, for some of us to get through. And, and I, I would not say that it's gratuitous bad language because anybody that's been in the military or around military people or around police officers, uh, as I have, uh, it's, it's that kind of language. And so it's not gratuitous foul language, but the language in it is oftentimes difficult. And so I, I don't wholeheartedly recommend the movie for those reasons, but as an adult, if you're interested in, in, in a, a great movie about the realistic picture of war and what took place on that battle, the first battle between the, the North Vietnam soldiers and American troops, uh, it, it's a great movie and it has some great object or, or lessons in it for us. 
The one that I take away from it comes from Colonel Moore's leadership. As he knew that he was about to take his troops into that battle, as they were graduating and preparing the first uh, air cavalry unit, uh, soldiers that would not be riding into battle on horses, but soldiers who would be riding into battle on helicopters. And he was charged with developing and, and preparing that unit, and they were going to be the first ones that, that, that met the North Vietnamese soldiers. While they were still in the States, he gave an impassioned speech, and, and you know, the, of course, the movie is a movie, and so I'm sure it's dramatized and over-dramatized in some ways, but Colonel Moore also was there all along as part of a liaison to help it be historical. And toward the end of that speech, he said these words, I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive, but I swear this before you and before Almighty God. I want you to hear that language. I swear this before you and before Almighty God that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field and I will be the last to step off and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. You hear in Colonel Moore's speech that covenant language. He knows that he does not have the full ability to keep that promise. It will only be by the power of God. And so he makes a promise to his men that as, as much as it's within his power and the strength that God gives him, he'll be the first to step on the battlefield and he'll be the last to step off. He will not leave a soldier behind. At the end of that battle, toward the end of the movie, it's not the very last scene of the movie, but toward the end of the movie, there's an incredible scene where his assistant commander uh, tells him, Colonel, the last man is off the battlefield. He steps into the helicopter, and as the helicopter takes off the battlefield, you see him step up into it, the last one to take a foot off of that battlefield. He, within all of his power, he kept his promise. And I would suggest that before that, he kept his covenant that he made before Almighty God and his men. That is the kind of men and women who God desires us to be. He has called us into covenant relationships. He's called us to make commitments where he leads us into a relationship with other men and women in a couple particular areas we're going to see in Malachi. And his desire is that we have that heart and that commitment to keep those promises according to his strength. And so read with me the text. This is a difficult text. A lot of preachers shy away from it, and honestly, uh, you know, it's because we're preaching through Malachi, I'm not skipping uh, what's tough. And so here we are. We live in a culture who, who does not like what God has to say here in this passage. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't mind when God's Word speaks against your sin. I just don't like it when his word speaks against my sin or my failings. But we'll never grow if we don't allow God's word to speak to each of us. Here's what God's word has to say. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do you act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Now, I'll pause here for just a moment Malachi is speaking on behalf of the Lord about the relationships that 
men and women within the kingdom of God, God's chosen nation of Israel, have with one another at this point. So he's saying, God created all of you, and he is your father. Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You're covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings and receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. God didn't make them, or didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. I want to look at this at, at two different covenants that God has called us into, and then I want to look at the, the redemptive aspect uh, in, in a third point before we close out today. The first covenant that, is, that, that we see Malachi focusing on here in verses 10 down through certainly verse 12, and in some ways even into verse 13, which is a transitional verse, that first covenant is the covenant that God has called you into with his people. In Israel, in, in the Old Testament, under that old covenant, they were joined together as the nation of Israel. Now, we're gonna, you're going to learn in one of your growth groups coming up uh, in a couple weeks, if, if, you'll, if you make it to growth group when you study the one on race, that the nation of Israel was not a monolithic racial group. Upon the exodus from Egypt, there were those who had Hebrew backgrounds, but there were also uh, people from Ethiopia, from south of the Nile River, and so they were racially diverse as far as skin color and even language and, uh, to some extent. And the, the old, what made them one unit was they were all committed to the Lord God of Israel. They had all committed their, their lives to follow him. They had, they had accepted, uh, they, they had been circumcised. They had all come together and said, we're going to worship Yahweh. And so, it, it, Israel has always been somewhat a racially diverse group. But in its religious commitment, they were monolithic. They, they, were, they were required to worship the one and only God. And so, that's where when he says here, don't all of us have one father? He's talking to them as the father of the nation of Israel. He's speaking as their leader, the father of who this is his family. Whether Whichever the 12 tribes you came from, you're all a part of this family of God. And so Malachi is speaking to the people of God in his day. Now, we know that under the new covenant that the people of God, that phrase or that, that metaphor is used to define the church. And so, 
it's easy for us to understand to transfer this message from God speaking to his people who were all of one father religiously as Israelites or Hebrews. Now, we are all of one father if we've been born again by the spirit of the living God. He is our father and we as the church are the people of God. And so, the, the, the command here, the, 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 the foundational understanding is every single one of us that has professed Christ as Savior, who's been born again by the Spirit of God, we are one family. We are one people under God. That's who he's talking to here. God is our Father. You know, it's, it's been embedded in our language, and long before I even understood the complexities and, and the truth of this metaphor in the New Testament. In, in all honesty, I didn't even delve into these things uh, until I began my PhD studies a few years ago. And, and this is foundational to what I believe as a pastor. Uh, I'm not the head of the church. I'm not in any way a father to you. I am a brother. Every single one of us identifies together. And, and that's why I'd prefer to be called Brother Dennis than Reverend or something like that, because we're all in this together. We have one Father. Our Father is God. Second to that is God is calling us as one of His children to have a commitment to His people. Now, once again, you can look at who Malachi is speaking to as the Israelites of the Old Testament. He's speaking to them to be committed to one another, to love each other, to care for one another. And his complaint is they have acted treacherously against each other. And by not treating their brothers and sisters, fellow members of the family of God, by treating them treacherously, by not dealing with them honestly and with integrity, they have done damage to the family of God. They've done damage to the people of God. They have not kept their covenant commitment to the people of God. Well, where does that covenant commitment come in? Well, with them, they made the covenant when they entered into a relationship with the living God and became a part of the Israelite family. For you and I, when we are born again, we enter into a covenant commitment, not only with the family of God universally, you enter into a public commitment, a covenant with a local body of believers. In the New Testament, that the understanding of the family of God applies both to the universal picture of the family of God, but the majority of the times that it's used in the New Testament, it references a local body of believers. The church in the New Testament, time and again, about 80% of the time refers to a local body. So when you become a part of the family of God, you become a part of a local family of God. You are committed to a local family. You have entered into a covenant commitment because it will say this. If someone comes forward and, and says that, uh, you know, I, maybe I've talked to him as pastor or, or Matthew or Nathan have, been, have talked to someone and they said, we believe God's calling us to become a part of this church body. We'll talk about what we believe and, and how God's called us to be a family with purpose, a family on mission. But I always try to use the language of the covenant because when you come and you say, I believe God's called me to become a part of this church family, you're not just saying, I want to join a club. You're saying the king of the universe, the ruler, the one who created it all, the one who sent his son to die for me on the cross so that I could be born again, that I get an everlasting life, the one whose kingdom I'm going to dwell in forever has spoken to my heart and he has drawn me 
here to be a part of this local church family. That's what we're saying. And if that's what we're saying and that's what we believe, how much weight should we put into God's call to a local body of believers? Let me illustrate something here because in my dissertation work, one of the things that I struggle with, in fact, one of the things that I called out is there has been a complaint, rightly so, throughout especially the American church of churches who'll say, well, how come a pastor, when he, God calls him to another church, God always calls him to a bigger church with more salary? I've, I've heard that time and again. Why is that? Especially if we believe that we are to make a covenant commitment with God to a local church. I have a problem with that. Those of you that know me and know the trajectory of, of the ministry that God has called me to, I've pastored two churches. And, and if God had, I don't believe God had forced me, I would still be in the first church that God called me to, a small church out toward West Texas. God moved me here. When God moved me here, this church was smaller in numbers than that church was. I didn't come for that. I came because I believed God. In fact, when I met with the search committee, who was functioning kind of as the hiring arm of the church, if you're not Baptist and you're not involved in that, when I first met with him, I looked him in the eye and said, I'm not here because I want to be here. I'm here because the Holy Spirit, I believe, has made me come meet with y'all. And if this is the last time I see y'all, I'm good with that. Because I want to be in the family that God has called me to be connected to. Not to come and go, to climb a ladder. Why is it? Well, I believe it's because it's part of our culture. It's a part of our nation. We, 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 we move up the ladder and we have, we have minimized the importance of the commitment to the local church, even pastors. Even leaders, even elders have minimized the commitment to the local church and they've treated the church more like a job than a family. Instead of having a covenant commitment to the local body of believers, they act more like it's just a job. I'm hired here. That is not God's design for the church. That is not God's design for the leadership. But now that I've called out pastors, let me take the next step. The Israelites, both the priest and the people, had failed to keep their covenant commitment to God's people. How many times as I have a past, as a pastor had somebody say something like this, God's called me here to this church family. I want to be a part of this church family. I want to get plugged in here. I want to raise my kids here. I want to be a part of this church family. And then, a year or two or three years down the road, their corporation offers them a higher-paying job in another state. And without any thought of the commitment, a covenant commitment they've made between God and their church family, they up and move. Now, I am not saying, please hear this, that God never moves a pastor. God does. 
in his sovereignty and in his purpose and his plan, sometimes he will move a pastor, he'll bring another pastor, he'll, for his purpose and his plan. And sometimes God moves families. But I think that we've got so caught up in our American culture and in the American dream that we idolize the American dream to such an extent that we have put that American dream in our financial well-being or our dreams of a job, we have placed that above our covenant commitment to the people of God. That's the problem that God had with the Israelites here. You have denied your covenant with my people. You have acted treacherously with those. I'm your father and you're my children and you're not treating each other like family. And so the first covenant that God calls the people of Israel out on is their lack of commitment to their church family, to his people as, as father of that family. Here's the, the, the third part of that God has called us, and this is where he begins to kind of make a transition here. He says, Judah has acted treacherously, and detestable act has been done in Israel and Jerusalem. How? For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what began to erode their commitment to their church family was they began to marry outside of the faith. They begin to marry, and I'm not talking about marrying, you know, a Baptist marrying a Methodist, okay? We're talking about Israelites who said, I worship Yahweh, the one true God, marrying a Baal worshiper who worshiped a plethora of the sun gods, okay? Who worshiped idols all over the place. And so God calls them out because what has begun to erode their commitment to their church family is their willingness to marry outside of their faith. And when we choose, God, in fact, one of the things that I've learned, if anything, about our, in this cultural study, is the seriousness, seriousness in the Old Testament. When I grew up, I, some, you know, I know that there was this old sense from, from uh, some of the old timers that, that God's challenging Israel not to marry foreigners had to do with race. It has nothing to do with race whatsoever. Like Moses, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a leader of the Hebrews, married a, a dark-skinned black woman from uh, Ethiopia, south, southern part of the Nile, below Egypt. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with marrying outside of your faith and, and lowering the bar to such an extent that saying, you know what, I, 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 this... This doesn't matter, and if, if, if my faith is, is derailed or mixed, oh, no big deal, because what that shows is a lack of commitment to God and to his family. And so here, he's, he couples those two together, where he says that the Israelites, the, my people have begun to marry those who are Baal worshipers. And because they're worshiping Baal worshipers, it has led them away from my people. So the challenge here is that God is calling us back. He's calling us to a covenant relationship with his people, with his family. And then he goes beyond that. And he says, and, and here's something else. He said, you have started coming before the altar and you're weeping before my altar. You're shedding tears on the altar because everything in your life's falling apart. You're not seeing the blessings that you wanted to see. Uh, you're, you're not, 
you, your offerings aren't being received. You don't feel like your offerings are respected by me, essentially. Why is that? And, and he said, and you ask why. He said, let me tell you. Because you have failed to keep the most basic covenant in your life. The first institution, the first covenant that God created after he created Adam and Eve was the covenant of marriage. God brought Adam and Eve together and and said, man and woman, you're going to come together and you're going to be the building blocks of my kingdom. So marriage has become, marriage, the marriage relationship is the building block of the kingdom of God. When a husband and wife come together on earth, they're united by a covenant. When I perform marriages today, in every case, the, the, the couple will tell me they believe God has called them to come together and be committed to one another. So what, just like when I talked about the covenant commitment to a church family, they're talking about a covenant commitment that God has led us to this place. I don't know, in fact, I wouldn't have married him if I had anybody came, come to me and say, well, we just want to try this out for a while. If it doesn't work out, we're going to do something else. No, that's not what marriage is. Marriage is you up front making a commitment before God, for better or for worse, to, to do your very best. Now, just like Colonel Moore's speech, sometimes there's things outside of your individual personal control. Sometimes one person in the marriage decides they're gone. You can't do anything about that. I'm not here to condemn. Well, God doesn't condemn divorced people. God, God loves divorced people. God sent his son to die for divorced people. God sent his son to die for single people. God sent his son to die for, for those who have committed the most heinous acts of God. sent his son to die for us because he loves us. God doesn't hate the divorced. I've heard that kind of throughout my marriage. That's just not true. God loves every single one of us. He just hates what that tearing up does to the family. I've not met anybody that, that truly has, has sought to, to work things out with God and their marriage is dissolved and they say, oh, I just love divorce. It's such a great thing. It's a wonderful process. I've never heard that because we know what it does. There's a hurt. There's a tearing. Not beyond redemption, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but a godly marriage is the building block of God's kingdom on earth. We're united by the covenant of God. We're joined in this passage, he says, by his spirit, so that the man and the wife, the husband and wife, become joint together in one spirit. Didn't In verse 15, didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? And he brings them together in one flesh. And so God has designed and desired that a husband and wife come together under his direction, committed to one another, to be joined together in an intimacy in their spirit and joined together in an intimacy in their flesh that is unlike any other relationship ever seen on this earth. That's God's design and God's desire for marriage. If I was to give my definition of marriage as I've worked through this text, working out this text, how I would define marriage from Malachi, marriage is one man, and one woman, intimately connected by God in his spirit, becoming one flesh, establishing the core unit of God's people for mutual love and for producing godly offspring. That's what this text teaches us about the, the 
covenant relationship of marriage. Broken marriages, the, a broken marriage covenant leads to broken homes. Broken homes leads to damage in the church family. And broken churches, damaged churches, lead to a broken society and a broken culture. It's just the truth. Now, what I want you to see here is that's God's design. Our world has accepted some incredibly crazy counterfeits. And we know that. More so in the last 10 years or 15 years than I would have even imagined even a couple years before that. Even to the extent where things have changed so much in, in, in what we call a marriage that the definition, we had to change the definition of what marriage was. Sandra did a great job in the, the material that she prepared for our growth group leaders, looking at the, the definition of marriage in 1911 in one of the major uh, English dictionaries, and looked at the definition of marriage in the 1980s, and then the definition of marriage in 2012. Absolutely incredible how we change the definition of the term to fit culture, so that the word doesn't mean what it used to mean. And yet, God is the one who designed the family unit. God is the one who tells us what marriage is. God is the one who sets the standard, and we, when we step away from God's standard, it is sin. And sin, at the very basic building block of God's family, of his church, is a husband and wife coming together, committed to marriage. Now, a couple things, a side notes here before I get to the last section. Does God desire or intend for everyone to marry? No. Makes that clear in his word. Not everyone's supposed to be married. Hey, Paul says, if you're single, stay single. Unless God has, has called you to marriage, singleness is a gift from God. So God has not intended everyone to marry. Does God intend and has he planned on every person having children? No. I don't think every married couple was intended by God to have children. But, but yet, understand that a man and woman married, having children becomes the basic building block of culture, okay, of any society. Men and women get married and nobody has children, culture's gone, right? Nobody has any children, there is no more nation, there is no more society, there is no more church. So, certainly, for the majority, God has that plan and that desire. And then lastly, does God hate those who make a mistake? Nope. God loves every single one of us. He, in fact, he loved us so much that even when we're in the midst of our, our biggest mistakes, he sent his son to die for us so that we could be redeemed. And so I don't want you to hear, because any time that, that, that a pastor preaches on something like this that is so that, that directly confrontational with where our culture is, what it comes across as is, is a, a, a mean, hateful God who's just out to get everybody for where they've messed up. That's not it at all. There's a God who loves you so much that his desire for you is that it worked out in the first place. His desire is that you came together with a, with, with a spouse of the same faith. And, and and, and you were united in his spirit, and you were united in the flesh, and you lived a full, meaningful, godly life. That's the ideal. 
But the truth is, every single one of us here is a sinner. Every one of us. I often say when I do marriage counseling, when people are struggling, there's never one person to blame when a marriage dissolves. There's always, now you may be, it may be 50-50, it may be 50%, you know, your, your failure and 50% your spouse's failure. It may be 60-40, it may be 75-25. I think I've seen some marriages where it was 99-1. Well, one, you know, one person was 1% to blame, the other person was 99% to blame. But you know what we have to do? I can't take responsibility for the other person and for their sin. I can take responsibility for myself and stand before my God with my failure and my sin and when I do that, he always offers forgiveness and redemption. God has a plan even when we fail to redeem us. Everything, every marriage, every life, every heart can be redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Every marriage, every life, Every failure can be transformed and redeemed by the power of the gospel. The problem with Israel is they did not take God's warning. They continued in their ways, and God brought punishment on them. But you and I have a hope. If you're still living and breathing today, you have a hope. If you're still married, I would suggest that God can restore even the most troubled marriages. I've seen it. It takes two people. It, it, it takes you being willing to give everything that you have to, to pray and to seek the Lord and to be willing to change that portion where you failed. The problem for when I talk to, to folks about this is more often than not, it's only one person who's willing to go all the way with God on it and do what it takes. And ultimately, in a marriage, it's gonna take both people willing to submit their hearts and surrender to God and do what it takes. And you're not responsible for the other person's sin and the other person's failure. And at those times, when you've done everything you can to deal with your part, and the marriage ends in divorce, you can stand before God forgiven and pure and ready to be restored to whatever else he has for you. When you've given it your all and you've submitted your heart to God and you've sought in the best of your ability to see that marriage restored, God can, God can do it. But as Paul says, I can only give so much. The other person also has to, has to come to that place. And that's why even in the Old Testament, God allowed under certain circumstances, divorce. There's some cases where divorce is not a sin. The divorce still hurts the heart of God because it hurts his kids. But there's some cases where you're, when you are the, that party in the divorce, it's not because of your sin, because you've done what you could. But you know what? Even if you failed and it was you, it was your fault, here's the good news. God can bring good things from broken hearts and broken homes. Even when I sin, even when it's my fault, even when it's too late to go back and fix it, God can still bring good 
out of my life if I'll commit and humble myself to seek him. There's a passage in Romans right before the passage my wife read earlier that many of you are familiar with. It says, we know all things can work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul said all things. That means even failure, even sin, even mistakes can work together for good. Now, that doesn't say all things work together for good for everybody, does it? And it doesn't say all things work together for good all times. It, the scripture says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When we seek God and we lay our heart down on the altar and we seek his forgiveness, he can redeem us even when we're the party who's responsible. I want you to hear that because there's no one sitting in this auditorium or is listening to this online or might hear this online later on who is beyond the redeeming grace of God. If you're still married, your marriage isn't beyond the redeeming grace of God. And if your marriage has already failed and you're divorced, you are not beyond the redeeming grace of God. God loves you, and God desires his very best for you. And so his call is for you to come back to him and recommit and resubmit your life to him. Jesus died to forgive us for where we failed, and Jesus rose victorious over the grave so that we could live a full, abundant, meaningful life even after we've sinned. So the good news is, in Christ, there's always hope and there's always redemption. No matter where you are on that timeline, God's struggle, God's call to Israel is here. You have so watered down your commitment to your relationship with my people that you're doing damage to your families and to, your, to, to, to my kingdom. Quit making half-hearted promises. If I've called you into a covenant relationship, you need to be all in, not half-hearted. Just like last week, he called him out for half-hearted worship. He's calling us out this week for half-hearted commitments. Well, I'll stick with it until it gets tough. I'll keep my commitment to the church until I don't like something the preacher says. Or I'll keep my commitment to the church until one of those deacons does something I don't like. That's not the commitment that God's called us to in our connection with the people of God. If he's called us, he's called us to a covenant commitment. And that transfers over to our home on a greater level. Oh, I'll stay married as long as I get what I want out of the marriage relationship. If I'm not getting what I want, I'll just go somewhere else. That's garbage. God has called us to a covenant commitment to the best of our ability to seek him and submit and, and, and surrender to him in that covenant that he's called us to. If we are convicted Today, of a half-hearted commitment, I challenge you simply to bring it before the Lord and lay it down at his altar because he will forgive you and he'll redeem you and he'll restore you. And that's the good news of the gospel. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want our society to continue to, to circle the drain as our, as our marriages and our homes and our families. I, I started to bring a whole bunch of statistics today to the table from Pew Research about where, where our culture is headed because of the, the dissemination, the disintegration of our families and our homes. But I, I really decided I didn't need to do that because you see it. You know it. So let's stick to what God's word says. 
Let's renew our commitments to our, our church families. Let's renew our commitment to our homes to be the men and women that God's called us to be, to keep our promises, to stick with it, to be the first one onto the battlefield and the last one off, regardless of what's going on around us and how hard it gets. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.